Hello, and welcome to Meditations from Middle Earth. My name is Strider, and I'm a Christian worker here in where I call Middle Earth. We love to meditate on God's Word, and He's given us so many unique and rich experiences here in Middle Earth, and I'd like to share those insights with you here on Meditations from Middle Earth. Today we're going to continue discussing Matthew in our meditation time, and we're going to back up another chapter, going from chapter 4, where we've been discussing Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, and now backing up to John's baptism, ultimately leading to Jesus' baptism and his the declaration of the Father over him as the Son. And so, as we um, begin that Today we'll talk about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven that John is announcing in the kingdom of God that has come. So, But before we get to that meditation, I'd like to discuss the discipline of service. Service uh, seems to be well understood enough. We serve others. We do things for others. But to make it a discipline, to, to work on it so that we do it better, this is, a, uh, this is a different idea, I think. Uh, a lot of us like to think about service as something that we work past. Uh, we begin serving our children when they're very young, and as they grow, if we've do not done our jobs right, they'll begin to serve us. We serve at work, and if we do our job well enough, then eventually others will serve us. And I would put to you that that worldly trajectory of service is not the way that we're to think about it. This is the discipline of the towel. This, of course, being a great reference to Jesus serving uh, the disciples in John chapter 13, where Jesus takes up the basin and the towel and he washes the disciples' feet. And he says, you're going to do this for others, even as I'm doing it for you. Jesus does not do this in the beginning of his ministry uh, so that he can teach the disciples how to do it, and then eventually they'll wash his feet and he'll be served. No, he's doing it this at the end of his ministry, as he's already taught them how to be servants. And now he's continuing his act of service because I want to make this clear here that The discipline of service doesn't lead to us doing service better. The discipline of service is to make us a servant. And there's going to be a, uh, I want to point out that there's a huge difference here in terms of acts of service as opposed to being a servant. Bernard of Clairvaux says that the less, learn the lesson that if you are to do the work of a prophet, What you need is not a scepter, but a hoe. And his point there is that uh, the work of, the true spiritual work of working with people and and guiding them and leading them to a closer relationship to God, if we're talking about discipleship, if we're just talking about walking hand in hand as disciples down the road with other disciples, then what we need to do this work is not a scepter whereby we rule over others, but a hoe whereby we serve alongside others, digging in the dirt, as it were. 
And so Jesus makes this very clear, of course, in Matthew, in Mark uh, chapter 10, 35 through 45, is the famous um, description of what is it to be the greatest and what is it to be the least. He, and Jesus makes the statement that um, the, the greatest among you are the ones who serve the most, and the greatest of all is the one who can serve all. Uh, speaking, of course, directly to himself, for he alone has the power to serve the whole world. I don't have the power to serve the whole world. I have the power to serve as many people as God has given me the grace to serve and the strength to serve. But it's as long as it's my choice to serve, then I'm not a servant because I'm, I remain in control. Choosing to serve or not to serve always means that I'm in control and it always means that I'm going to count the cost. Well, I will serve in this situation, but I won't serve in that situation. I will serve here because it leads to some benefit, either for that person or for myself. And I won't serve in this other situation because I don't see any benefit for me. I don't see any benefit for anybody else. And we're weighing the cost of servanthood. And as long as that's true, then we're not truly servants. We're people who do service, which is good enough. But to become a servant, and which is what the discipline of service is leading us towards, it's, it's helping us to achieve this, this constant working on ourselves to help us to stop choosing selfishness and to always choose grace and service to others. Self-righteous service is the biggest enemy of all of this. Uh, where we serve others and do it quite effectively and receive the praise and admonition of men saying, wow, admiration of men, I should say, and they say, wow, what a great servant you are. And as we do this for our own selfish gain, uh, there's a number of characteristics here that sabotage the whole process. It sabotages the whole endeavor. If we're, if we're self-righteously serving others, It's done through our human effort. It's not done through God's effort because God's love is always self-giving. And self-righteous service is always done with an eye out to how it self-engrandizes my character, my nature, my reputation. It's impressed with the big deal, as Richard Foster says in his book, Celebration of Discipline. He talks about service being really um, service that's self-righteous is done in a way that's everybody's impressed with the big thing. So the little acts of service, eh, they're not so important. I need to be seen in a big way. And certainly I've seen this on the world stage here as I've worked in humanitarian aid for some time. And a lot of your big government projects, uh, really the outcomes do not value actually helping people. Uh, and, and making their lives better. When you look at the big governmental projects, a lot of those projects are meant to be big and impressive so that people acknowledge that the government that gave that money is, is big and impressive. Uh, it's meant to be a public relations scheme rather than uh, something that really aids people. And we've seen this in humanitarian aid again and again. And, of course, self-righteous service always, always, always requires external rewards. Somebody had better say thank you. Somebody had better appreciate this. And Jesus um, 
admonishment to us to not let the right hand know what the left hand is doing and uh, to do things in quiet and in secret and to not shout it from the mountaintops is hard for us to hear because we want that external reward. We, I, I often, in my own personal life, as I'm working with somebody and I'm helping them, I want them to say thank you because I rationalize, well, it's good for them. They should be thankful people. And so if they're not thanking me, it's, it's good for their discipleship if I go to them and just remind them how awesome I have been in their life and how much they should be thanking me. And this, of course, defines me as not a servant of them, but a servant of myself. And it, and it undercuts everything that I'm trying to do. Self-righteous service, can, as, as an act itself, can look exactly like any other real service, but the motive, what happens in my heart, changes everything. And it's always highly concerned with results, and it picks and chooses whom to serve. It's affected by moods and winds. If, if, I'm, if I'm just up to choose, then, oh, today I'm kind of tired, so I'm not serving, and Another day, I have plenty of energy, and I feel pretty good about myself, and so I'm going to serve. Or worse, I feel terrible about myself, and I need to do something to make myself feel better about myself. And so there I am working, worldly works, in order to get men to praise me so that I feel better. This, of course, is the opposite direction of where we're trying to go as disciples and trying to draw closer to God and seek His approval. And ultimately... Self-righteous service is temporary because it's done without any sensitivity. And, and because of all this, it ends up fracturing community instead of creating community. If you're serving in a situation, uh, maybe in a, in a group, in, on a team, or in, in a public situation, in a community situation, and as you're serving, uh, there's more and more division then what's that division about? Is it about your ego? Is that the problem here? What is going on that division is happening? Uh, because service and love should lead to people looking towards the Father, the author of love. And that brings unity and a common grace where we're all thankful, not to me who's done this wonderful service, but to God who has loved us and cared for us once again. Yes, this time through me, another time through another person, but we're always thankful to him because it's he who is at work through us and in us. And it draws community into unity and self-service where I'm setting myself up as God. Well, that just fractures the community and leads to division. My motives are always on my sleeve. I try to hide them. But people see through me right away. If I'm doing things for, in a self-centered way, people recognize that. So true acts of service are hidden. They're a part of the small things. I think about Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, who did the, the knitting the things and how everybody loved her because she was a humble servant, not enamored with the big things, but just loving others because that's who she was. There's lots of other ways of acting in service that I, I think we overlook uh, too often. Guarding others' reputations. Uh, this is a big theme for me personally, uh, just because so often my own reputation has not been guarded. 
uh, good friends have made me look bad in front of others and uh, brought me down. And I think when I think about that and I think, wow, um, they were completely right. Everything they said was completely true, but I feel terrible. How often have I done that to others myself? And how often do I have to repent of, instead of guarding other reputations, I'm, I'm tearing others down. Uh, this is an act of true service, is just to guard people's reputations. Common courtesy is an act of service, you know, holding the door open for somebody who's got a load and carrying it through. Um, I remember driving down the road once and just stopping the car dead and, and jumping out and there was this guy who was trying to get empty this wheelbarrow into a dumpster, and he couldn't quite lift it up. And I just grabbed one side of it, and he grabbed the other, and we put it on in there. And then I jumped back in the car and went on down the road. And he doesn't know my name or anything about me, but that to me was a good example of just a small service, a common courtesy. Hospitality is another great service. Uh, where we just welcome people into our homes and what we have is available to them. Listening, of course, is an act of great act of service and, and one that, oh, Lord, I'm so terrible at. Can I just sit and listen without giving my opinion, without trying to solve their problem? Can I just listen and hear them and let them know, yes, I heard you, and I don't have to force you to hear my opinion or my solution or my own story. I just want to serve you by listening to you. And that leads, of course, to bearing others' burdens. And so as we serve others in all these ways, we hope that we're sharing a word of life, the gospel ultimately, the fact that God loves them. And he's, the proof of that is that we're loving them right now, and he's loving them through us. So duty-motivated service, of course, breathes death. Service must flow out of a well of God's love in your heart. And as it flows out of that well of God's love, he's loved us, he's served us, and so as he is serving us even continually now, we serve others well. And so this is the discipline of service. I encourage you to think through these things and see if we can't serve others better, love others better. But now I've talked for too long about our discipline today. I really want to get to the meditation. And so let's begin our Lexio in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I'll stop there. These are powerful words from John. He was obviously a powerful preacher. And what's amazing to me about John is he comes, um, the first prophet in 400 years of silence from God as the Jews are there and going through great difficulties uh, under Roman rule, first Greek rule, then Roman rule in the, in the promised land. And they're suffering and they're struggling. And here comes John. And his word is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This sounds like good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heaven is always associated with something good. Nobody says heaven and then insinuates something terrible or evil or bad. Heaven is the personification of all goodness and love and grace and beauty. It's the place we we, we want to go when we die. We want to end up in heaven, in paradise, in this place of bliss, in a place of favor with God. And so as we, as we contemplate what that means, we, we think about, well, gosh, you know, someday I'll die and then maybe I'll go to heaven. Here, John is not saying, hey, gang, when you die, you're going to go to heaven. He's saying the kingdom of heaven has come near now. How is that the case? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And what are they repenting of? As they come forward with their various sins and guilts, all the ways that they've broken the commandments of God, all the ways that they've harmed their neighbors and themselves, their family members, all the ways that they've failed to act righteously, all the ways they've failed to do good, and all the ways that they've embraced evil and selfishness, And John calls them to repent of all of that and come before the kingdom of heaven. When I think about this, when I meditate on kingdom, the idea here, I believe, is that a kingdom has a king. And he rules and he reigns. And as the king rules and reigns, all those who are obedient subjects to his rule and reign are experiencing his kingdom. And all those who are in rebellion against the king, well, they're not experiencing the goodness of the kingdom. They are in rebellion, a rebellion to the king. And I think when we when we see what Adam and Eve did in the garden and where we've been since, it's pretty clear that we're in rebellion against whatever uh, was supposed to be the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Whatever Whatever relationship we were supposed to have with God in the beginning has been broken. And we just look around the world and we just see the brokenness of the world. And we realize we're in a kingdom that's actually quite difficult. All of our worldly kingdoms have injustices about them. We complain about inequality and prejudice and injustice. We complain about crime and violence and fear and when we think about all these things, we think, wow, the, the world can be a really terrible place. And we, and we try to find an, some peace in the midst of all of it and try to carve out something for ourselves where we're in control and where the world's not so scary. And yet again and again, the world breaks in and says, oh, no, <laughs> you're still part of this scary place. There's still crime and violence. There's evil going on all around us. 
And even when we've escaped every, every system of government and every system of institutions that seem to oppress us, along comes disease and sickness and health issues and then interpersonal issues with our family. And we realize we can't escape the injustice and the violence and uh, the evil of this world. And as we're trapped in all of it, John comes along and says, the kingdom of heaven has come near, that kingdom of peace and love and grace, that kingdom where we can feel at home and be safe. It's come near. We're not waiting until we die. We're not waiting for something else to happen. What needs to happen is happening right now, John says. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And that means that the the king is coming. And so as Jesus shows up on the scene there as the fulfillment of what it means that the kingdom of heaven has come near, then we realize that we need to acknowledge him as leader. We need to repent of all the ways that we're trying to live life on our own in our own strength and let somebody else take control and let the king be the king in our lives. John calls this repentance, where you've repented of letting everything else, letting fear, I would say, be the king in your life, and giving yourself over to letting God be the king in your life. This is such an important idea, and here's the thing about that that I want to really focus on right now. As I meditate on this and think deeply about the kingdom of God, Jesus is known as the way, the truth, and the life. He's the truth. He brings truth. If God is the creator of all the universe, then his kingdom is the only true kingdom. Every other kingdom is a fake kingdom. It's not, it's not real. It's not eternal. It's not going to last forever. We think about the great empires of history. Um, even during Jesus' time here, as we're talking about the Roman Empire and the wonderful Pax Romana, 200 years of peace under that empire. And yet, that 200 years of peace ended a long, long time ago. And that kingdom did not endure. But the kingdom of God does endure. It has no end. Because God has no end. And he's the king. So to declare ourselves as subjects to that kingdom... And to participate in the kingdom of God is to participate in truth. Everything else being a temporary lie, something that's not going to last, something that's not eternal. And when we talk about the opposite of the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus is the first one to come along and call hell, you know, what is that? He says it's a place where people have weeping and gnashing of teeth. It sounds awful. And it is awful. Because what hell is, is the lie. God is love. He loves everything and everybody. He created all and he loves all. And you say, well, then why does he condemn things to hell? And I, I would put it to you that he doesn't. What John is asking us to do here is to repent and give up the lie that we're living and acknowledge the truth of the gospel and acknowledge the truth of the king. And therefore, as we participate in truth, God loves what is true. 
God cannot love a lie. If you believe about yourself that your kingdom is what is going to have no end, that you can rule and reign over your own life and over the lives of others, that you can make something of yourself, these things are all lies. And as the judgment comes, they will all fall apart and will leave us weeping and gnashing our teeth at the loss of everything that we valued. As we value anything not God, as we value anything not eternal, as we value anything not what God has created good for us, as we value our own lives, our own decisions, our own creations, as we create our own kingdoms, these things will not last forever. And if that's where our, our hearts are, then our hearts will found to be in nothingness at the end of the day because it's a lie and God doesn't love a lie. God only loves what is true. And that's why, <laughs> that's why John turns to the Pharisees who have built up their whole personas based on their own goodness, their own righteousness. And even though that you know, behind everybody's back, Jesus accuses them of stealing widows' houses, of oppressing the poor, of doing terrible things to other people. Their public persona is one of, we're very holy, we're very righteous, we keep all the laws, we love God. This is their public persona, but in reality, Jesus says they're empty, full of dead men's bones. In other words, they're a lie. And as the judgment comes... The kingdom of God stands and stands forever, but their kingdoms do not. And when they're left with nothing in their hands, then they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a sad thing to discover what you love is not true. We've all experienced it, actually, in this world. As we've gone through our own lives, we've, we've chosen to love things that didn't last that, and and we feel betrayed by that. that. That feeling of betrayal, that feeling of hurt and loss. We've all wept and gnashed our teeth at the loss of it. And so, as I meditate on this, I want to meditate on the truth of the kingdom of God. It's not coming here to punish us. It's not coming here to straighten us out. It's not coming here to um, impose anything. It just is as the truth. And John's invitation is for us to cast aside everything else and just embrace the truth. And as we embrace the truth, we'll discover that that word heaven has a real meaning, that there really is peace, there really is love, and there really is joy in living in the truth. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, help me to embrace the truth this day. Help me to offer the truth to others around me who are lost in darkness and selfishness and fear. Your love cast out fear. May it cast out fear in my life and may it cast out fears in, in those around me. And may we all walk into you the light and the love of your kingdom. And now I'd like us to take a time of contemplative prayer where we sit in silence 
emptying our thoughts out and just listening to the voice of God. I'd like us to read Psalm 46 and then sit in silence for 30 seconds and then I'll conclude our time with a verse and a blessing. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. Open the door and be still in his presence. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. This has been Meditations from Middle Earth. May God be your ever-present teacher and richly bless you on your journey.